You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Back in September of 2013, Judith, a French journalist living in Berlin, messaged her first ever Tinder match. After that initial message, she sent 1,699 more over the next three years. Messages about her hopes, fears, sexual preferences, and deepest secrets. She used the app 920 times and matched with 870 different people. She copy-pasted the same joke to match numbers 567, 568, and 569. These matches also exchanged compulsively with 16 different people simultaneously one New Year's Day, and then ghosted 16 of them. Judith knows all of this because she emailed Tinder and requested her personal data. Every European citizen is allowed to do so under the European Union's data protection law. And what Judith got back? Some 800 pages containing information such as her Facebook likes, how many Facebook friends she has, links to her Instagram photos, her education, the age rank of men she was interested in, and when and where every online conversation with every single one of her Tinder matches happened. Tinder's privacy policy clearly states your data may be used to deliver, quote, targeted advertising. Even a step beyond that, the privacy policy says, quote, you should not expect that your personal information, chats, or other communications will always remain secure. The trouble is, these 800 pages of Judith's most intimate data affects far beyond who she is matched with on Tinder. It also affects what job offers she has access to on LinkedIn, how much she will pay for insuring her car, which ads she will see on YouTube, and if she can subscribe to a loan. Ultimately, the lack of a national privacy standard leaves many online daters with inadequate protections and creates regulatory uncertainty for the dating apps and websites themselves. So in the meantime, how can people using online dating apps protect their privacy? Thanks for joining our Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a new book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. Online dating apps are very popular with many people. Applications such as Match, OkCupid, Hinge, Bumble, Tinder, and Grindr reach millions of people who are seeking romance and companionship. According to the Pew Research Center, about 30% of American adults have used online dating, and that is up from 13% in 2013. And among those 18 to 29, the percentage rises to 48%. People like the convenience of online dating and being able to swipe left or right on various prospects. It gives them access to individuals they might not meet in person. You have basic information on these people so you can get a brief sense of who they are and what their interests are. Yet critics complain that online dating apps take the romance out of dating and turn dating into a commodity business with people judging each other on superficial considerations. Others worry about algorithm-driven romance and that these tools open users to privacy invasions. To discuss these issues, we are pleased to be joined by two technology experts, 
Caitlin Chen is a research analyst in the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings, and she is finishing her master's degree in public policy from Georgetown University. Michelle Robinson is an intern in governance studies at Brookings and an undergraduate at Stanford University. Together, they are co-authors of a fascinating Tech Tank blog post about the privacy ramifications of dating apps. And you can find that on our Tech Tank blog at brookings.edu. So let me start with Michelle. Tell me about this world of online dating apps. I have to admit, I've never used one and don't really know much about that world. So what are they like? Why are people using them? I'd say online dating apps are an increasingly pervasive way for people that are looking for a romantic relationship, especially younger people, to meet one another. There are a myriad of apps on the market, usually distinguishable by a certain trait or skill. So, for example, some apps are unique because they're associated with specific professions, hobbies, etc. However, there are a few hugely popular apps like Tinder and Bumble that control a large share of the dating app market. And then to give a very brief overview to any listeners that might not have as much experience with these apps, their interfaces are usually very simple. As you were saying, you can just create your own profile, include pictures of yourself, maybe a little information about you, the same kinds of things you would see on any social media profile. And then you can see other profiles of individuals that you might be interested in. You can decide if you're interested in each potential prospect based on their profile. And if you are interested and you do like them, you would swipe right or like or heart. There's plenty of different methods specific to each app. And if not, you would swipe left or X. And if two users both swipe right on each other, they are what's considered a match. And then they can chat privately, usually on the app. And different apps try to gain more users by adding modifications to this format, but that's typically the baseline of what you'd see on most online dating apps. And to really give you a sense of the scope and importance of this topic, these apps have truly skyrocketed in popularity over the last decade even. So you mentioned the Pew study that suggested three out of every 10 American adults had tried online dating. That same study also found that over half of the never married community in America had tried a dating app. So these are huge numbers to be seeing in a change of only a few years. And one particularly fascinating statistic that I learned from a 2017 study, so even three years ago, was that meeting online had become the most commonly cited method by which heterosexual couples met, even outperforming much more traditional methods such as meeting through a friend or meeting through work. So obviously we can already see a huge shift compared to the norms of dating and relationships that came about just a few years ago. And as you may imagine, these apps are particularly common with the younger adult community. I think it's very ironic that such a large amount of the generation which grew up with our parents telling us talking to strangers was dangerous and could get us hurt actually ended up doing just that to find love. I think we often see in tech policy a sort of reluctance to discuss less traditional platforms of technology, but that does a huge disservice to the overall tech community. So in dating apps, we see many of the same concerns as other areas of tech, questions of security, privacy, and safety. And I think that's a narrative that really needs to be considered as we discuss the concept of dating apps, because they have a very wide-reaching implications for tech policy and the overall current zeitgeist. That is a great overview. So thanks for providing that background and the numbers of people using these, that is really impressive. And just the growth over the last decade, as you pointed out. So Caitlin, same question to you. What are these apps like and why is a third of the country using them? Shayla is completely right about the exponential rate at which these apps have grown their user base over the past few years. And I just want to add to that a little bit. I think that it's especially important to talk about these apps now for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and with many people staying at home, dating apps provide a convenient and socially distant way to meet people. 
And to add to that, it's especially relevant to discuss dating apps during this season around the holidays in which dating apps have traditionally seen a spike in users in previous years. Several media outlets are calling this time period cuffing season because it's when people allegedly experience higher interest in romantic relationships. And with the holidays behind us, even Chipotle has released a special cuffing season menu this year. Both the pandemic and this cultural phenomenon called cuffing season factor into the popularity of dating apps at this point in time. But there are plenty of other reasons as well. Technological developments are often a response to challenges in society. And in this case, some may see dating apps as a solution to finding a partner. First of all, dating apps can take some of the scary unknown out of meeting people because they're mostly used by folks who are interested in dating. That means that taking the first step to ask somebody out can be a lot less nerve wracking. You know that you're both interested in each other. You know that you're both interested in meeting. On an account level, users can choose what aspects of their lives they'd like to present to prospective users. And some of those that information, such as job or hobby information, can be helpful in finding a successful match. And in addition, these apps, and especially the larger platforms like Tinder, Hinge, and Grindr, have a huge population of users. That means you have a chance to meet people outside of your typical social circle and have access to a greater pool of potential dates. It also means that members of the social network have some sort of experience with these apps, which can normalize the process for others. And beyond the rise of dating apps is the fact that the internet has become a hub of social activity in general. With such a framework already in place, I don't think it's much of a surprise that we're seeing so many people turn to cyberspace to find love. So, Michelle, uh, Caitlin just mentioned COVID, and obviously that has changed the dating world in many different respects. People now have to worry about health considerations and social distancing uh, guidelines. How has COVID changed the world of online dating? Oh, that is a very good question, Daryl. And obviously, as you were saying, one that is incredibly pertinent right now. And I think to fully address it, I'm going to kind of divide your question into two sort of sub-questions, both how the apps themselves are changing and then how the user base is changing in result. So the apps themselves are really seeking to create experiences for users to connect online instead of meeting up or leaving the house, pretty similar with what we've been seeing from other tech platforms. Many of them are instead encouraging dates over a video call format instead of, say, meeting in person or doing anything else that could be very dangerous. I think that Hinge is even using the ever-romantic concept of statistics to sway users. So when you start a direct chat with a match, it will tell you that up to 70% of users would be happy to meet over video call instead of going on in-person date. And other apps are adding things like video software to their interface and publishing examples of successful video dates to really suggest that the norm is shifting to be video dates instead of trying to meet up in person. But response from users themselves, I think, is a lot harder to quantify because there are so many and they're not as routine as the apps themselves. So the dating company Match released data recently on the dating for the most recent dating apps that they had from the year. And it said that 20% of single users went on a video date during the pandemic, including 50% of Gen Z users. So again, huge numbers here, especially from the younger crowd. But unfortunately, not everyone has hopped on that trend. So some have gone on socially distanced walks outside, while others have just completely ignored COVID guidelines altogether and met up at bars or other dangerous crowded areas. I think that the severity of the pandemic and the move to distance dating has made things more serious in a relationship as well. So in an interpersonal date context, another interesting takeaway from that match data was that the majority of dating app users said that they felt they spent more time getting to know each other and were more honest with their interactions. So Caitlin, what impact have you seen on online dating based on this pandemic? 
Well, I think one of the most noticeable effects of the pandemic has been the volume of dating app activity itself. Tinder reported over 3 billion swipes the day of March 29th alone. And other platforms like Hinge and OkCupid have also experienced record engagement after lockdowns began. But I think we may continue to see a lot of the trends that Michela mentioned in the long term. In a previous Tech Tank podcast episode, he talked about how teleworking from home may continue well after the coronavirus pandemic ends. I don't think it's too bold to suggest that the same may hold true for video call dating. And with that shift to telework and constantly staying at home, plus the colder and darker season, it's no surprise that people are turning to dating apps for connection. Many people will be away from family for the holidays this year, and I think that's why we're seeing this increased usage in dating apps. Even people who were unfamiliar with the idea of online dating in the past are now in a situation of social isolation where virtual interaction with other people is now the norm. And in a strange way, the pandemic has upended traditional social norms themselves, which introduces a lot of questions when it comes to dating. For instance, what is the socially accepted protocol when it comes to a Zoom date? Or how much time should be spent messaging between matches before a date occurs? And ultimately, how does one maintain health and safety while dating during COVID-19? Everybody has personally been touched by this fiasco that is 2020 at this point. And like Ms. Michela said, that adds a sense of seriousness and maturity to conversations. So I wouldn't be surprised if that change has influenced the way that people are thinking about dating. So, Michelle, in your Tech Tank blog post, you write about the privacy problems of dating apps. What risks do you see? I think if there's anything that listeners can take away from what we've said so far, if they completely tuned out for the last 12 and a half minutes, it would be that dating apps are on the rise and COVID has only helped them rise harder. And with this increase in usage, we're seeing apps and companies that have also had a parallel increase in the data that they're storing. So there's a lot more data and a lot more people. And like most of the topics that Tech Tank has covered in the past, I think COVID has really exacerbated existing concerns and giving us a reason to care that has to extend beyond the hypothetical end of the pandemic. So even once vaccines are out, we need to still care about these issues because these apps are still going to be wildly popular and most importantly, still have heaps of data on everyone that's been using them. Exactly. I don't think everybody realizes just how much information dating apps can have on them. First, there's the information that users put in their profiles. So occupation, name, gender, age, sexual orientation, or anything else. And if that's not enough, then there's also the content of private communications, including messages, photos, or videos that you send, or even data that users may be unaware is collected, like swipe history or precise geolocation. And if somebody connects a social media platform to a dating app, it also transfers personal information from that platform. And much of this data could be considered sensitive personal information and even linked back to the original user, especially when aggregated with other data. It could also be stored indefinitely or shared with third parties. And in addition to data that apps willingly share with advertisers or other companies, there have even been several recent examples of security breaches within online dating companies, some even exposing private messages to hackers. Yeah, I, I think Caitlin is, of course, completely right here. One of the most shocking data points that I found when I was researching this blog post was that 57% of dating app users are concerned about the amount of data that dating apps have on them. 
And that's just the data that users are aware of. Like Caitlin was saying, I think there's so much more data that these apps have on us than we know about. I mean, I downloaded Tinder for two weeks briefly for a research assignment, and I was able to download the data that they have on me recently. And it is so much more than I ever initially imagined. So if anyone out there is thinking of getting a dating app or already has a dating app, it is very safe to assume that they have much more data on you than you may realize. And unsurprisingly, dating apps have come, come under fire for these privacy issues pretty consistently. One very interesting example that I found was a dating app that stored some personal data, including intimate photos and messages, in publicly accessible storage online that these journalists just happened to find when they were looking for something else. And that's terrifying. That's not what you want with your personal data, let alone private and intimate messages. And one question that I think often comes up in discussion of dating privacy is this idea of, okay, well, so what? Why does it matter if companies have access to this data? And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, I think that this is one of the clearest areas where the danger of personal data storage is very, very clear to anyone that might use it. Because if you remember that old adage, don't put anything online that you wouldn't want on the front page of the newspaper, that is a key example of that idea. And I think that is, again, especially the case for dating apps and very intimate messages and personal spaces. You wouldn't want everyone to know what you're writing on there. And unfortunately, with dating apps, that's not always the case. Right. And actually, the Tinder example reminds me that this data collection and sharing isn't only coming from smaller or lesser known apps. There have been several studies finding that very popular app options like Grindr and OkCupid have shared data with hundreds of partner companies. And this is especially concerning because surveys demonstrate that LGB and younger people use dating apps at much higher rates than the general population. Grindr, for example, which is a dating app for gay, lesbian, and bisexual individuals, has collected sensitive data like HIV status and most recent test dates. So these privacy issues really disproportionately puts that community at risk. Depending on a company's privacy practices, the results can real, reveal somebody's sexual orientation or expose deeply personal data. So all of this is to say that the so what question that Michelle mentioned has an incredibly heavy answer. And it's interesting, you know, 10 and 20 years from now, when people start running for office, I wonder if opposition researchers are going to go back to uh, some of these uh, sites and try and find embarrassing uh, information about the uh, individual. It would not surprise me uh, at all. So uh, each of you have highlighted a number of problems in this area. So, Michelle, what are the current privacy rules in regard to dating apps? There's been this growing consensus among privacy scholars and policymakers that the current system just really isn't working. So the FTC is the nation's primary enforcer for privacy violations, but its authority is largely limited by a number of factors such as insufficient resources and statutory authority. So when the FTC does bring cases under Section 5 of the FTC Act, which prohibits companies from engaging in, quote, unfair and deceptive acts or practices, this can lead to a system of notice and choice where a company can really choose and advertise its own privacy policies and then require people to agree to their terms before using a service. So these are the terms and conditions that everyone jokes about not reading and completely accepting. The FTC will primarily file complaints if the company breaks its privacy policies, but not for the privacy policies themselves. That's obviously a very large gap and a lot of leniency in regulation. And privacy policies in dating apps take very little responsibility. So for example, the dating app Bumble tells users that anything you post or submit on the app may be publicly viewable and accessible. And and we want our bumblers to be careful about posting information that will eventually be made public. And then my personal favorite, we think our bumblers are awesome and we want you to share how awesome you are with the world. So I think these quotes aren't shying away from the fact that third parties will be able to view this data, but it often gets lost in the weeds of the terms and conditions. 
Yeah, it's it's never a good sign when a privacy policy says this. And I think Michelle said hit the nail on the head. Definitely explain this better than I could. And unfortunately, as former FTC Commissioner Maureen Olhausen once pointed out, the current law encourages companies to write very loose privacy policies. If you set the bar low, it's harder for the FTC to come after you for deception or false advertising. And unfortunately, government oversight of dating apps at the moment is just very light in that fundamentally comes down to the fact that the United States does not have a uniform law that protects the privacy of Americans, no matter which service they're using. At the moment, the U.S. has some kind of a hodgepodge of federal privacy laws that regulate certain areas, and some of these laws are very specific. For example, we have FERPA, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, which allows students to access and correct their school records and also requires schools to obtain consent in many cases before sharing a student's educational records. This is a good start, but FERPA only applies to schools when processing records from their own students and not data from applicants or students from other institutions. Furthermore, and I emphasize this, we don't have laws that dictate what types of data dating apps can collect, who they can share it with, and how long they retain this data. And ultimately, there are so many gaps in federal privacy law, and even though several states have attempted to pass privacy legislation of their own, their efforts are fragmented as well. Only about half of states have passed laws requiring security precautions as basic as encryption. And although all 50 states have one by one passed laws requiring companies to notify people of any data breaches, it took almost two decades for states to individually do so. The most comprehensive state privacy law so far is California's, but no other state has yet passed a similar law. So, Michelle, are there privacy law changes that need to be undertaken in order to improve the safety and privacy of online dating apps? Uh, Yes, definitely. The short answer is a definite yes. There is absolutely room room for improvement in this space. So simply put, the current system causes a lot of confusion for businesses, individuals, dating app users, basically anyone who uses the internet. And essentially, we have dozens of sectoral, federal, and state privacy laws that each govern a very limited and separate situation in privacy while leaving other cases largely unregulated. There are huge gaps here. We need one uniform federal law that creates clear rules for how businesses are allowed to collect, process, and share personal information from Americans. And it has to also require organizations to keep data secure and delete information that is no longer necessary. And those are two very important components that we need to see. I I agree with Michelle. And this is actually a topic that we discuss a lot at Brookings. But the United States needs a new federal privacy law that applies to all organizations and sectors, which includes dating apps and websites. Of course, there are many ways to conceivably improve the privacy of dating apps. States could pass statutes, companies could voluntarily choose to improve their privacy practices, or perhaps future court decisions might even provide more clarity about how existing legal precedent applies to dating apps. Yet, Michelle said it once, but I'll just say it again, the most effective option would be to simply pass a new federal privacy law. I think it's very encouraging to see bipartisan support for a federal privacy law on Capitol Hill, and I'm hoping that a national privacy law here and these changes will open the door for other national laws about security on dating apps. Because beyond just app-based data sharing, there is a whole slew of concern about harassments on dating apps that, while out of the scope of our current conversation, seriously need to be addressed. These are the things that you think of when you hear about dating apps in the news or kind of the equivalent of the concern that anyone you meet online 
line might be dangerous. But these apps have seriously given rise to incidents of stalking, hate crimes, and harm. And so while it is very funny to think about dating apps and all of the myriad of hilarious stories that come out of them, there are some very, very serious consequences. In one particular and somewhat graphic example, I apologize that I saw that just really struck me. A man's ex-boyfriend posted his personal data on an app with instructions to sexually assault him and implied that this was some sort of sexual fetish that he wanted. And so any attempts to fight back would only be encouraging that. And that was obviously incredibly dangerous. I Anyone that is listening to this, I'm sure, is terrified at the thought of that happening to them. So starting with this privacy regulation that we're proposing can open the door to address these problems, but it is by no means enough to f- solve all of the problems that we're seeing with dating apps, and those need to be addressed right now. So each of you emphasized the need for a national privacy law. What should such legislation look like? What should it include? Yeah, so I I think as Michelle said, a national privacy law needs to give people more control over the data that they have. For and this starts with allowing users to access the data they have, correct it, even delete it when that data is no longer necessary. And importantly, it needs to impose clear rules for how businesses can collect data or share data or even how long they can retain data. I think the fact that the that companies like Bumble or Tinder can collect so much information on people that people might even be unaware is collected or unaware that it's shared outside of the context of the dating app is just, it's, it's just startling. Yeah, I mean, I understand the impulse to go with a more state level regulation, but on a personal note, in the past 12 months, I've temporarily lived in the United Kingdom, New York State, California, North Carolina, and Ohio. And there's no reason for my data to be protected in some of those places, but not others. We cannot have a situation where people need to research potential travel destinations before they book, just to be sure that their data isn't stolen on vacation or while they're at the beach. And at the heart of it, I think dating apps and websites pose some very real and current privacy risks. I mean, the internet doesn't have borders. So to me, a national law would make a lot of sense and be much more effective than just state-level different laws. So Caitlin, Michelle mentioned uh, the international experience. How are other countries handling this kind of issue? Are there countries that already have adopted these types of uh, provisions? How are they approaching this general area? The most comprehensive law that has actually influenced a lot of other countries is um, the European Union's recent General Data Protection Regulation, or the GDPR, which came into effect in 2018. Residents in the European Union to access, correct, and delete personal information that businesses operating in the EU have on them. And I think that this would make a huge difference in privacy in in the privacy of dating apps because it would allow people to gain more control over the data. In addition, the GDPR would also impose new security requirements on companies that would require them to keep data more secure and implement basic security measures that could help prevent data breach or mitigate the impact of any potential data breaches. And I also highlight one additional point of the GDPR is that it applies to all companies that operate in the EU and collect data from EU residents. So this would include companies like dating apps and websites, but would also include many other many other companies instead of the sector by sector regulation that currently exists in the United States. So Michelle, what have you seen from other countries? Are there good models out there of how we should look at these uh, kinds of problems? I do agree with her overall assessment that it seems like countries, especially in the EU, are much more aware of and addressing these privacy concerns. 
better examples, even beyond dating apps, of the EU and the GDPR providing better framework for these lawsuits that we might see. So the individuals I've mentioned that have been stalked or harmed from these apps that is easier to do and easier to pursue off of I think that one of the biggest problems that people have run into in instances of stalking or revenge porn and these issues that we see on dating apps and how pervasive they can be is that trying to get an account taken down is a lot harder without a regulatory framework to do so and without statutes in place and previous instances of that working out very well. And unfortunately, under the current frameworks that we've laid out, that's a lot harder to do in the US. And we've seen several more successful examples in the UK. Obviously, as soon as an account is posted that has personal information or it could be harmful to an individual's reputation, that is horrible and it has gone too far already. But even the ability to take that down within a day instead of leaving it up for weeks or months is better than the current system that we have in place. So having these ideas at the forefront of our mind and especially having policies ready to address them and laying out a clear path by which we can do so are some changes that I think we need to see honestly yesterday, but today I would settle for. So, Caitlin, we have millions of people who are using dating apps. In the absence of national laws, what can individuals do to protect themselves from dating risks? You know, I'm glad that you ask, because for too long, the common narrative has been that if you don't like something, don't use it. However, the Internet and smartphones have become so prevalent in this day and age that people don't necessarily have many options other than to use websites or apps. And this is especially true because of COVID-19 and social distancing. Of course, the most effective way a person could protect themselves from the privacy risks of a dating app is to simply just not use dating apps. But it's not realistic or even fair to preach the abstinence-only approach where we tell people to not use dating apps at all or to even refrain from any other app or device that also collects data. Instead, we need to set clear standards that will help protect people's privacy while they use such apps or websites. Companies just have to be the ones with the legal responsibility to protect privacy. We cannot keep charging users with monitoring the privacy of every single app, device, or website that they use, especially now when people are required to use dozens, if not hundreds, or thousands of platforms every day in order to live in this COVID-19 world. And this is particularly the case for dating apps when people tend to have multiple different apps based on the affordances that they provide, and when users tend to be very, very young. I mean, you can't expect an 18-year-old to look into the privacy policy of every single app that they download, especially ones that are handling very serious personal information like direct messages or romantic interest, and especially questions like sexual orientation. I mean, when you consider the usage of these apps, there are a lot of communities that are being disproportionately harmed. And so we cannot have a policy that puts the onus on them to keep themselves safe. I want to thank Caitlin and Michelle for sharing their thoughts about online dating apps. Uh, they write regularly on the Brookings website, and you can find their work at brookings.edu. Let us know if you have any reactions to this podcast. We look forward to hearing your suggestions. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast. And sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.